Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. My name is James and I'm a dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, who are both autistic. Each week on the podcast, I get to speak with someone who tells us their own story about autism. I chat with autistic adults, parents of autistic children and professionals who work within the autism community. There'll also be some episodes where I share more about me and my boys, some of our experiences and what I've learned along the way. This week, I'm joined by Heidi Mayveer. Heidi is a Sunday Times bestselling author of the book, Your Child Is Not Broken. She is a late identified neurodivergent adult and parent of an autistic ADHD teenager. Heidi talks to me all about her son's mental health crisis, brought on by the struggles he faced in a mainstream school as an undiagnosed autistic student. With Theo unable to attend school, she found herself in a huge battle to get him the correct support package to make education accessible for him, one that many families are going through right now. We talk about Heidi's own realisation that she too was autistic and the difference that has made to her life ever since. Heidi is passionate about helping other parents and carers become powerful advocates for their neurodivergent kids and draws on her own experiences with the education system to ensure that children like her son Theo are no longer falling through the cracks at school. I think this episode will be especially useful for any parents and carers whose children are struggling at school or who are fighting to have their needs recognised. I also think it'd be enlightening for anyone who is considering exploring a late autism diagnosis themselves and wondering what difference it might make to their own lives. I loved getting to know Heidi and Theo's story and I'm sure you will too. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Heidi, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, really excited to find out more about you and your story. Um, I'm sure our followers are going to really enjoy uh, getting to know you and, and your family. So do you want to start by giving us a little intro to you and and I guess your your story about autism? Sure. So my name's Heidi Maver. I am 14. Uh, <laughs> I live in Yorkshire with my son, Theo, who is 18. Um, and until four years ago, we had no clue at all that we were a neurodivergent household. Um, we thought we were normal, <laughs> inverted commas. Um, and, uh, things kind of came to a head pretty spectacularly when Theo was heading into his first year of GCSEs and, uh, the wheels came off pretty spectacularly and he went from, being able to be in school and appearing to be fine in school. We later learned that he wasn't to it being very clear that he wasn't fine in school, crashed out of school, hit mental health crisis. Um, and what followed was kind of three years of us unpicking what had happened. And during that process, realizing that not only was he autistic ADHD, but so was I. Um, and then I wrote a book about it. <laughs> you did you, you did write a book about it um we'll get onto the book in a bit a very popular book that um has recently been been released uh so so let's go back to uh i think you said is it 2019 when when all this sort of first yeah. first came about so in in your words it was you know you felt like you're just a normal family everything was going okay Fio, started to struggle a little bit in secondary school and and so so how how did the word autism first come up so it's really interesting actually because looking back on it there were so many opportunities for people to who who should have inverted commas known mm -hmm. to to perhaps raise that with us and no one ever did 
Um, but actually what happened was a, a dear friend of mine whose son is autistic, we were at their house and um, they have like 12 dogs and Theo was like rolling around in the garden with the dogs as, as he does. Like if there's any animals around, you don't get lucky in with Theo. I mean, again, why did we not clock it? But whatever. <laughs> um, and he was rolling around in the garden with dogs. And my friend Shah said to me, so when was Theo identified as autistic? Wow. And I was like, he's not autistic. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. Are, are you sure? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'm sure. And then that was the beginning of it. You know, like I it kind of, in, in, you know, in that respect, it felt like it came from nowhere. Of course, it came from nowhere. Of course, people who know their way around neurodivergence and autism and ADHD, we know our own. And when we see our own, we're able to name our own. But yeah. I had never, you know, my, what I thought about autism was really stereotyped, really ableist, really rooted in kind of like that, you know, like very fixed view of what autism looks like. And I had never thought before that moment that that could be what was going on for Theo um, or for me. So then I kind of did that thing that autistic people do when someone says something to you and then like you dive into a rabbit hole <laughs> and like came up for air about four days later thinking, <laughs> crikey, <laughs> so we're <laughs> autistic then. <laughs> um, and that was kind of the beginning of that for us. But yeah, it was a friend. It was someone who had an autistic child who saw in Theo what she saw in her own child and just was like, so, um, which I think is not uncommon actually. And I'm grateful yeah. to her. You, you kind of mentioned it there that we, I guess when autism, autism is a part of your family, you, you kind of identify in others more easily and than maybe they do. Like you said, you had no idea. I certainly had no idea when, when the boys were young, cause, cause I think very similar to how you've described it had very stereotypical views of what autism was and didn't really know, mm -hmm. know much about it. So what, what happened next from, you, you go on this deep dive for four days and, and research. What what do you decide to do next? So I had a bit of a, it was really, I'll be honest, that, that deep dive was pretty depressing. Mm. Like I, I found myself, I probably ended up on mum's net. That's never a good idea. <laughs> um, and I found myself like doing that thing where I think a lot of parents of newly identified autistic kids do where you get sucked into those stories and those that narrative of how terrible it is and what an awful thing it must be, you know, and the worst thing in the world that could happen would be that your child would be autistic and all these horror stories about, you know, how terrible a prognosis it is and how terrible a diagnosis it is and all of that. And I was, and, it, and I found it really depressing and I found myself like, I remember a few days after that conversation with Shah, I remember getting really upset and saying to my partner, I feel like I've got a different child. I feel like I'm seeing things that I have missed and I feel like I've really done him a disservice and I'm finding it difficult to like feel stay connected to him because all of this information I'm reading about autism that is so deficit heavy that is telling me everything that's inverted commas wrong with him is really coloring the way that I look at him mm. and it's really making a difference to what I'm seeing in his 
presentation, his behavior, his communication. And it was really hard. Like, I, I know that a lot of people have that experience where they kind of, they buy into that narrative of this is the worst thing that could happen in a family. I no longer think that. I think that's absolute bullshit and it's ableist horseshit. And I wish that we didn't get pulled into it. But at the time it felt very real. And I remember just sitting with him and he was sat on the floor and he's a very keen Lego enthusiast. And he was sitting on the floor with Lego and he was like just carrying on doing his thing and um, chatting away to me. I remember thinking absolutely nothing has changed. Like mm. this is a, like it, everything has felt like it had changed for me. But he was exactly the same. Like he hadn't changed at all. The only thing that had changed was the way that I was viewing him. And I sort of had this moment of, right, okay, I feel like I've got a bit of a choice here. And I had come across some stuff that Christy Forbes had written. So Christy is an amazing Australian neurodivergent educator, parent of four neurodivergent kids. And she talks a lot about like radical acceptance within neurodivergent households and, you know, how it's an act of rebellion to push back against that narrative that says that there's something wrong with being autistic. Um, and I read a lot of her stuff and I had a conversation with her and I said, you know, I'm feeling like I'm seeing things for the first time. And she was like, you've got a lot to process. There's a lot going on there, you know, and you need to give yourself some kindness while you do that. And you also need to remember that nothing has changed. Hmm. You've got new information, not a new child. And that was kind of like the turning point for me when I was like, that's going to work for me better than spending my life trying to work out whether he needs a coffee enema or <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you read so much rubbish, <laughs> don't you about, you know, like, yeah. And, and, and like, and, and I think we all, a lot of us go through that process of what have I done? What is this my fault? You know, yeah. have I, you know, should I not have done X, Y, Z? Should I have breastfed for longer? Should I not have had them vaccinated? All of that rubbish, you know, in reality, <laughs> The only way to have not had, had an autistic child would be for me to never have a child because I'm autistic. So there's a very good chance my child was going to be autistic. But no one really says that to you when you're like in the beginning of working that out for yourself. There's lots of conversations about what causes autism. Like, oh, autistic people having sex. That's what causes autism. <laughs> <laughs> but no one says that. Um, so I had to do a lot of, a lot of that. But, um, yeah, that was a turning point for me. Kind of just. Cause he's a cracking kid, you know, yeah. and, 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 and we always had a really great relationship and we still do like, it's not without its problems, obviously, but I just, I lost sight of that for a bit. And, um, I was really grateful to Christy and to other people who kind of brought me back to re remembering that. And was this happening all at the same time as when he first started struggling at school or were you yeah sort of so it was realizing kind of running that alongside before? that alongside okay i was it was kind of running alongside that it was like he had started to struggle in school over the the easter term into the summer term it was summertime when shah said to me how long have you known theo is autistic and then he went back after summer and he lasted he managed a half term and he never made it back in after after halloween um so it went from pretty good attendance to no, no attendance within about six weeks. Um, and all the while I felt I, I was playing catch up, trying to work out what was going on. You know, I kind of had this feeling in the beginning of this kind of like picture of him as this neurodivergent child, but I was doing a lot of catch up 
And all the while I was having conversations with professionals who were telling me he wasn't autistic. He was fine in school. You know, he couldn't possibly be autistic. He makes good eye contact. You know, he's. Right. So even after you'd, you'd figured out he was autistic, you were still having professionals tell you he's definitely not. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had the, the Senko said to me, um, he certainly, you know, because I said to her, do you think he's autistic? And she said, well, I can certainly see autistic traits, but I wouldn't necessarily say that he's autistic. And I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) And then, and then there were lots of conversations. I got a referral for him to go on the autism pathway. I made an application for an EHCP, an education healthcare plan, which is the document we have in the UK when children need additional support in school. Um, but I came up against that a lot. You know, he's, I came up against that. He's very bright. He makes good eye contact. He makes good conversation. He's got good social skills. Like I trained myself an expert masker, basically, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, because (laughs) who knew I'd been masking for 40 plus years. So, you know, you learn from the best, right? Um, but he, I came against that time and time and time again. And I was getting all of that stuff that parents who have children who have barriers to attendance get, you know, just bring him in. He's fine when he's here. He's maybe picking up on your anxiety. You know, um, if you make home too comfortable for him, of course he won't want to come to school, you know, and, and all the while he was in full blown burnout and meltdown around all things school related to the point that he wasn't able to put his blazer on. He wasn't able to get, we went, he couldn't even get up in the mornings. He was just in such extreme shutdown by this point. Um, It was really distressing. And he was, and I was really worried about him. Like I could see what a massive impact it was like. It's kind of like he, he coped as long as he could. And then he just hit this massive crash and it just went spectacularly pear-shaped almost yeah. overnight. Now I know that that's not what really happened, but that's what it looked like from the outside. Mm. Um, Cause he had been coping and masking for so long and he just got to the point where he couldn't anymore. Um, but there's very little understanding from the professionals around us. Um, Senko told me I'd never get any HCP. Um, you know, I, all of that, like, yeah, ridiculous really, but it, it, it not uncommon. Like I've spoken to thousands yeah. of parents who have had very similar, very, very, very similar experiences. Yeah, I same here. I hear it all the time. I'm really fortunate that Jude and Tommy have had a a statement, as it was back in the day, and an EHCP. Mm-hmm. You know, they go to a, a special special education school, and school they've had difficult times at school but it's always been the best place for them and they both really enjoy it. And it's the best, um, best mm-hmm. setting for them. Now, clearly that's not true for many, many families who, uh, are either in mainstream without any support or in the wrong, wrong setting and mm-hmm. end up in a situation like, like your son where he just can't even go anymore because it's, it's too much. And yeah, and we both know, you know, I'm sure we have mutual friends whose kids aren't in school and who um, there's just no other option for them. So yeah, what happened 
for Theo next. Like how, like you said, it was sort of GCSE time. He's at home. How long was he out of school for? Yeah. All told, he was without provision for, uh, well, we then hit like, um, we, it was COVID. So we hit lockdown. Oh, of so course. that was complicated further. Yeah. Um, but he was without any provision for over 12 months. Hmm. Um, we did when lockdown hit, he, we had just got an EHCP for him. So he was then entitled to go into school. Um, but he wasn't able to go back into the mainstream that he was in. Right. He was in a really big academy high school. We'd tried a managed move that had been disastrous to another school. I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and finally got him a place in a pupil referral unit um, for children with social, emotional, and mental health challenges. And fortunately, because that kind of coincided with lockdown, he was able to attend there because it was a really small cohort. Um, and he finished his GCSEs there. I mean, he never really started his GCSEs, but he did finish his GCSEs there. Um, so he, he managed to, I mean, he worked like a demon and I was paying a tutor, um, to help him through it. for Theo. The challenge was never academic. Um, yeah. he's a, a young person who really applies himself academically. He has a great deal of pride in the fact he is capable in that way. And he's a real like learner. He loves learning. So it was never the, the learning itself was never the barrier. It was always the environment. Mm. So it was always, you know, busy hallways, moving between classrooms, unstructured times, navigating friendships. All of that was the challenge. Um, you know, sensory stuff around his uniform, noise was a, it is a big issue for him, you know, strip lighting, all of that sensory stuff. Um, he's not yet diagnosed, but we think he's probably dyslexic as well. So there's all of that kind of stuff. He's, he's dyspraxic. So constantly falling downstairs, bumping into things, all of that, but it was never the academics. So whilst he was at home, I did manage to get him some one-to-one -one tutoring to keep his hand in with his subjects. And he was able to get through a combination of that and what they did for him at the PRU, he got five GCSEs, oh, brilliant. which like I'm forever grateful for. Like mm. he, it meant that he still had some options there. Um, but why, where we were then was that we'd had it recognized that he was, uh, he wasn't yet uh, diagnosed as autistic. He was identified as having sensory processing disorder auditory processing disorder and social communication differences, which is basically autism. <laughs> but you know, like, Yeah, that's, like, all combined. That's, you know? that's what autism is, right? <laughs> yeah. Just like, can we not just like, can we not just use one word? But anyway, um, he had, he did have an assessment through the NHS um, who at the end of the assessment said, we're not going to diagnose you with autism. And he burst into tears and said, well, if it's not autism, then what is it? Um, and they were like, well, you know that autism is a disability. You don't want to be disabled, do you? He was no like, way. it's not a question whether I want to be or not. I am yeah. autistic and I would like someone to just say, yes, you are. You're not, you're not making this up. So he wasn't identified at that time as being autistic, even though he knew 
we all knew, you know, we knew the accommodations that we made for him were accommodations that worked for autistic people. He yeah. identified as and was beginning to come to terms with his own identity as an autistic person. But anyway, so, but we had had an EHCP approved and we had had it agreed that he needed um, a smaller setting by which time he was post 16. So he was, look, we were looking for an A-level setting and there just was nothing. Like there was, there were settings that were for, young people who had, you know, who didn't have five GCSEs and who needed help to get GCSEs or who had, um, you know, like kind of learning difficulties or other barriers to academic achievement. And then there were settings that were kind of like, um, kind of more vocational based things. So, but again, kind of like not really for children like Theo, whose main barrier was the environment rather than the academics. We just couldn't find anywhere. Um, there was one school that would have been suitable, but it was an independent private and they were full and we couldn't get him in. So he had a year following that of education otherwise than at school that I managed to secure him by going to tribunal. And we had a full year of uh, tutoring intensive occupational therapy, which was around helping him to like regain his self-esteem and feel confident and, and just understand his own sensory profile as much as anything else, like help him to learn how to advocate for himself and to manage his energy levels and to be able to say when things were too much so that we were trying to kind of like protect him from another burnout. Basically, he also had some psychotherapy. We had a learning support mentor who did lots of work with him on, um, things like feeling more confident in the community and getting on public transport. He got a dog, you know, so um, we had that year. And then he, in September, just gone, he went back into a mainstream setting. So he's now in a mainstream college with an EHCP and right. quite a lot of wraparound support. Um, but really only because he has worked incredibly hard and the team around him have worked incredibly hard to make that possible. And, you know, it could so easily have gone the other way. Hmm. I, I have a lot of families who I work with and who I support who that window of opportunity has closed and it's a very different story. It's a very different outcome for those children and young people. But now where we're at is he's back in a mainstream setting and we're back in the place where they're saying, well, he's very academic. He's doing all right. He's fine when he's here. And I'm like, oh, he's struggling quite a bit. Hmm. <laughs> no, no, he's fine. He's fine. You know, so full circle, really. But, you know, hopefully this time around, I've, I've got my eyes open and it won't come to crisis point. And we do, you know, no question. If he wants a mental health day, he has a mental health day. I don't, I never push it. If he says I can't today, I'm like, fine, email them, tell them you're not going to be in. Um, you know, we've kind of learned the hard way that you don't push through that. If, if, and he will sometimes be like, oh okay i will i will but on days when he's like i just can't i'm just like right fine then you're not going in so yeah it's quite it sounds like now. in quite a short space of time really from from when you first became aware that that fio might be autistic you've managed to figure out a lot figure out the different support he needs the adaptations the the things that work for him and go to the tribunal, get those things fought for and get them put in place for him. Um, how, how did you do it so quickly? I mean, this is, you know, it's, it seems like you've, you've really come to understand Theo and maybe Theo's really come to understand himself 
or in a, in a very short space of time. So, yeah, um, it's helpful when you're autistic and your hyper-focus is autism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like my special interest. Mm. So that's worked <laughs> in my favor. Um, uh, and I, I've had really good support. I've been really mm. fortunate. The people around me have been super generous with their time and their expertise. Um, and I wasn't working. Like I was working, uh, I was doing a, a little bit of freelance work. Um, but I, I, I had the freedom. I say freedom. We've been on like universal credit forever. And I've always, right. whilst he's been younger, I just all kind of picked up part-time stuff, bits and pieces of freelance stuff. My background before he was born was marketing and PR. So I did freelance things, but I didn't have an inverted commas proper job yeah. um, when all this kicked off. And I had a bit of freedom around that in as much as I had to just stop everything. And I did. Um and I was in the position where we were already on the benefits wagon. So I was able to kind of like do that. You know, I didn't have to make the decision to give up a full-time job or anything. But honestly, three years of this has been my job. Three mm. years has been, this has been a full-time job, getting him what he needs. Um, and I'm aware there's a huge amount of privilege that goes with that. Um, and the thing that really drove it because it's very difficult, I think, when when you've got like a like a lot of autistic people have this sense of justice and what's right and what's fair and what's proper. But the thing that really drove it more than that was that he was able to tell me what he wanted. Like mm -hmm. he wasn't able to tell me why things were difficult. He wasn't able to express to me why he was struggling so much. He wasn't able to articulate. Theo also experiences situational mutism. So sometimes he cannot speak, but he was able to tell me what he wanted. And so right. I knew to get him that I had to go through this process because what he wanted to was to be able to go to college. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a, for me, it was a bit of a no brainer, but it nearly finished us. Like it mm. was, it was not fun. <laughs> and is that where, I mean, you mentioned the OTAS already. Um, is that where you decided to set up your page and, and, and start? sharing your experiences and helping other families is that is that all around sort of in that time yeah i mean i was kind of like in advocacy spaces like right at the beginning when i knew theo needed an ehcp i was spending a lot of time with advocates and i was doing bits and pieces of kind of like peer-to-peer -peer support with other parents because i've got that kind of brain where i can read quite complicated stuff and then i can make it palatable i can make right. it make sense i think that's because what that's what i have to do for myself so i mm. read complicated bits of like legal gumph oh my phone just went my... yeah i can read complicated bits of like gumph and then make it like make sense um so i was doing that like during the process and then i was sharing and vlogging about what was going on for us and then it became clear that like other people were coming to me and being like so my kid's been off school and what do I do? And I was just able to go, oh, do this, 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 and this. So it kind of grew with that. And then we were like growing this community at the same time. And it felt like I was sort of like one of the people that was doing a lot of the learning around what EOTAS meant, 
like reading the case law, keeping an eye on LGO decisions, being a proper geek about it, and then sharing with other people. So it wasn't really a conscious thing to kind of be like, and now I'll make a business. It just kind of grew with us. Um, and, you know, and I'm a chronic oversharer. So I guess people benefited from that or not, depending on whether you like someone who chronically overshares. But I think one of the things that I, when someone first came up to me and said, and it was another parent, it always is another parent who like drops a bit of wisdom and you're like, oh, and then that changes everything. Another parent said to me, have you thought about education otherwise than at school? And I was like, what's that? And they were like, well, Google it. And I Googled it and I couldn't really find anything. And so I was like, when I started to work out what that meant and read a bit of case law about it and was starting to see what that could look like and finding other families who had similar arrangements, I was like, this information is not easy to find. And so I wanted to make it easier for people to find it because I know that there are literally thousands of families who are in not dissimilar situations to what we were. Like PDA society reckon, uh, reckon that 70% of PDA kids are out of school or persistently absent. Um, and that's just PDA as, you know, that's not allowed yeah. for the neurotypes. So, you know, I was just like, if I can, if I can get stuff out of my head and into other people's brains that makes it easier for them, then that's not a bad thing. Cause that's what I needed. So if you think back to, to what you needed then, what, what's some simple advice you could give to, to parents whose children are struggling at school right now, either because, there is no EHCP being followed or it's not being followed well enough and their children are struggling. And because I get messages about it all the time and I'm no expert at all because we've had a very good school experience. So what, what would you say to, to parents in that position? So I would say it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> um, you have to pace yourself. And this will be something that you're learning about for the rest of your child's life. Mm. Um, as they, you know, and you need to be kind to yourself in the process, like it, it, trying to advocate for your child or young person, especially if they're in crisis is incredibly difficult. It will have a massive impact on you personally. Not only are you worried about your child, but you're also trying to navigate the system, trying to understand the system, trying to get people to understand you. I think the things that I needed to know back then was there is a chronic lack of understanding within our school systems of neurodivergence. Um, it isn't the fault of individual members of staff, but people within the school system do not understand autism. Um, particularly if it's not kind of that classic presentation of autism. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean, you know, like seven-year-old white boys who, you know, are savants and, you know, all that that kind of like traditional, not at all accurate, stereotypical view. Um, and I think the things I needed to know back then, I needed to understand masking and I didn't. And I had I understood that earlier, that would have made a massive difference because for every time that someone said that he's he's fine in school, I wasn't able to, because I didn't know, push back against that. And I needed to, because he wasn't fine. <laughs> um, he was, he appeared fine, but he wasn't fine. Yeah. I think the other thing I really needed to understand and wish that I'd known earlier was that the 
what is required for you as a parent in a neurodivergent household is that you kind of have to make the decision to do things differently and you have to make the decision to do things based on what is right for your family first and foremost. And that will annoy, upset, frustrate other people. But what I learned through the process is that you absolutely must prioritize your mental health and your child's mental health. And sometimes that will mean you don't do things that you probably would like to do. And sometimes that means that you will push hard against things that feel like they shouldn't be pushed. And sometimes that will mean that you'll just stop everything and rest. And that has to be the way you do it. You have to. One thing that I feel like for for generations of parents that are, that are like me, who perhaps are unidentified themselves, have children who are identified and then realize their own neurodivergence as well. We're the cycle breakers. We're the generation who will model to our children what it looks like to self-advocate and who will model to our children what it looks like to understand your own sensory system and to understand what regulation looks like for yourself. And we have to do things differently because if we don't, we'll get sucked into the void that is masking, compliance, you know, ableist stereotypes about what is expected of us and we'll hit burnout and we won't make it into, you know, our late 80s like we're entitled to. So... I wish that I'd had someone who was just, who would just have been able to say to me, you're not making this up. This isn't your fault. You can trust your gut on this and trusting your gut looks like this because when you're in panic and you're in like that overwhelm, you're just desperate for people to tell you what to do. And you believe everybody Mm. because it's delivered with such kind of like confidence, but I was astounded by the lack of understanding and I am still constantly astounded by the lack of understanding by people within our school system. The lack of training for teachers around how to support autistic learners, especially is staggering. And that's why we've got this massive crisis within our school system where we've got children crashing out of school on a daily basis because they're not supported. There you go. That's my short answer to your question. (laughs) I've, I've come, that's all right. I've come to realize there's, there's no short answers, Heidi, in our, in our chats, but, um, especially not with me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I picked up from your book, actually, that, that really hit home is when you described about how you're in that state of stress where you're so worried about your child that it's impacting you and your decision making and your understanding. And, like you said, what you want is someone to just give you the answers and to, to tell you what to do. And you do take people on, on what they say because they're professional, they're, yeah. they're a, a teacher, a therapist, a, a psychiatrist, you know, whoever it is in the system. And you want them to be right because you want that, you want that answer and you, you want to just follow it and, and make everything okay and, and stop your child being so, so, so stressed and so, so upset. And it really hit home thinking back like, yeah, in those, those early years when, when Tommy and Jude were really struggling and when they were having meltdowns and, and, you know, it was, you know, no sleep and, and the combination of factors that you, you really do need help so you just go with with pretty much whatever anyone tells you and Mm -hmm. i think that that's why you do end up looking at desperate solutions and and ill-informed answers and and because you're just hoping that oh if i do that then everything will be okay 
And I think yeah. it comes from being in that state of yeah. being so, so stressed and, and worried about your child. Yeah. That overwhelm. Like mm. it's, you're in pure survival mode. You yeah. feel like your very existence is under threat. You know, mm. when you have a child and they're struggling and then that's impacting you and maybe the rest of the family and as a family unit, you're struggling and no one's getting any sleep. No one's getting yeah. any respite. Um, it's really difficult to, it's really difficult to regulate. It's really difficult to regulate yourself to be able to effectively parent. Um, and you think, you believe, I naively, this is what I naively, naively believed, and I think lots of parents naively believe this, that someone would say to me, oh, maybe he's autistic. And I would go, oh, okay. And then I'd trot into school and I'd say to the Senko, I think he might be autistic. And they'd say, yes, we think so too. Let's do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Let's get him all of this support in place. There you go. It doesn't need to be such a big deal. Mm. That's what I thought would happen. <laughs> be nice if it did. It's not it? the way it works. I mean, that is what it should look like. Yeah. And when we're being told, you know, there are too many applications for HCPs going through, there are too many families going to tribunal, and they're talking about it should all be about early intervention. That's what effective early intervention should look like. But in order for that to happen, you've got to upskill your teaching force and you've got to up resource your education establishments you cannot expect to be supporting disabled children in mainstream settings without training and resources mm. and so you know i feel for school leaders i feel for teachers they're stuck between a rock and a hard place i've got a friend who's just qualified as a teacher and she had a two-hour session on special educational needs as part of a teacher training <laughs> two hours yeah, and, and, that, and in any classroom, that, that's not that's not two hours on autism. Yeah. That's two hours on special education, isn't it? No, it's, no, on send. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that, and disabilities. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> you know, and um, it's no wonder. It's no wonder that we have kids in crisis and families mm. in crisis. But it's just. I that there is very little understanding and support. And there is so much parental blame because people don't know any different. And so they are like, you know, I was talking to a friend this morning who's had a conversation and with a social worker who's basically said, I think your child is too dependent on you. She's his safe person. Hmm. He doesn't trust anyone else in the world because he's been so terribly let down at every turn. And now she's getting told it's her fault that her kid won't leave her side, hmm. you know, and it's like, it's so isolating and, 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 and no one tells you that there are other families like yours. Like yeah. I constantly had people saying to me, we've never had this before. We've never had a student like Theo before. And then when Theo got to the PRU and there was another kid from his same year group, he was like, Oh, so-and-so's at my PRU. I was like, funny that because your Senko told me they'd never experienced this before. Well, they clearly had because they placed another kid in that PRU. You know, it's like, like this best kept secret that, you know, because I think it would just take such a massive shift in the culture within our school system to actually support neurodivergent children in the way we need mm. them to be, that it's easier to not do that, you know, and, but it's our kids that pay the price. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's our families that, you know, ultimately suffer. 
But yeah, I wish that we'd, that I'd known. That's why I wrote the book. Because I wish that someone had said to me, this is not unusual, actually, given what's going on for your child, given what's going on in their education, what you're experiencing now is actually pretty common within the autism community. Mm. Like, this is a thing. I wish I'd known that. And in your book, you go into detail about your own diagnosis and so not only in the last four years of, of you dealt with with Theo and and the the fight for school and, and everything you've done there like you said you also come to the realization that I'm autistic too <laughs> how, how did that come about yeah. what how did that feel for you when you know did it sort of bring up a lot of past experiences and and help things make sense I mean yes and <laughs> It's a head fuck. Like mm. I'm not gonna lie. You I know, can imagine. Like yeah, yeah. The the app when you, like I was having conversations with people that were like, oh, so Theo's autistic and Theo does this, and I do that too. And people were just looking at me like waiting for the penny to drop. <laughs> like a lot of that. And like I saw a thing on social media this morning. It said, um, when of your when all of your autistic friends tell you that you're autistic, that's not false diagnosis that's a peer review <laughs> and I was like how long is it going to take me to realize that I'm not the only neurotypical person in my social social group yeah. there are just no, none of us are allistic you know we're all mm. but I the thing that I find found hardest about that actually there was a lot of relief in realizing and having that finally validated a lot of relief and a lot of things making sense you know, I going back to my childhood and all the things that I'd experienced, all the like, not false diagnoses, because I have had diagnoses of mental health conditions, which I don't think are inaccurate. But it was all the while like, well, you've got generalized anxiety disorder and a personality disorder and chronic depression. And then hiding in the corner was autism and ADHD, just like keeping a low profile, hoping that no one would notice them. <laughs> and that would have been really useful information yeah. because I was like, well, why, you know, why have all these things, why have I got all this? Like if I'd known the reason was because actually my mental health was impacted by the fact that my neurodivergence wasn't accommodated, that would have made a big difference. Um, if I'd understood my sensory system, that would have made a big difference. If I'd understood what regulation looked like, that would have made a big difference. But I think there's definitely, for me as an adult, there was a a different kind of morning where I was really sad about all the missed opportunities that I'd had mm. as someone who had not been supported as a neurodivergent person. I got nearly, I got to like 44 without knowing that about myself. And I had had 40 years of people misunderstanding me, me misunderstanding other people, me trying to pretend I was okay when I wasn't, me having to fake eye contact, me getting accused constantly of being blunt, blunt or abrupt, people thinking that I was being unkind when I was just saying what I thought, you know, like being called lazy because of my ADHD, skittish, disorganized you know, and it would have just been so helpful <laughs> to have known 30 years ago. 
but then my my presentation of autism you know like like being socially engaged and communicative and you know like not looking autistic this didn't exist diagnostically when i was in my teens like this would have been what would have previously been recognized as Asperger's. We don't do that anymore, but you know, this kind of autism was not recognized until 1997, I think by which time I was at university. So I was never going to get identified as a kid ever, Mm. you know, but it it was, it's a lot to process. You're going through your whole life, refiling things, re like looking again at memories and thinking, Oh my God. You know, remembering meltdowns, you know, it used to be a joke in our house that I would throw myself on the floor in supermarkets. You know, it it was kind of like, it was a funny thing. You know, I was having full-blown meltdowns at 10 years old in supermarkets because I could not deal with the sights, the smells, the sounds. I still hate supermarkets. I couldn't have my hair washed. I would scream the house down. You know, I, to the point that my mum cut all my hair off because she couldn't deal with washing it. Really? Um, you know, I, I had like massive things around, there was a, a, a coffee shop near where we lived and they did fresh, fresh ground coffee and it pumped out coffee smells into the street. It would make me vomit. You know, these things that I, that everyone was just like, Oh, stop making such a fuss. That was all my autism. <laughs> and I had no clue and no one else did either, you know? So there's definitely a, a sadness that comes, not with the diagnosis. I'm not sad that I'm autistic, not at all. Um, I'm sad that I didn't know sooner. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine, but from from what you've described, like you said, there are things that, that now should get picked up in a, in a 10-year-old. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes they're not, especially in girls. But the, yeah. Yeah, looking back, I can, you know, all the, the things you just described there that they can clearly point towards, you know, autistic traits and, and things you're struggling with. How, how has it changed you going forward? So since you've had the diagnosis and I'm guessing being able to understand yourself a bit more around, uh, sensory issues, you know, those kinds of things, has it led to some adaptations to help make life easier? Oh yeah. Yeah. Our Mm. life is very different. I mean, we've still not got it together (laughs) at all. (laughs) Um, but I, I mean, one of the big things for me is I hit like a pretty significant burnout period and I'm probably Mm. still in burnout actually. Um, and who knows how long this you've, you've mentioned burnout in in terms with Theo and and with yourself. Do you want to just describe how that Mm. presents for you? Like what, what actually means? So for me personally, Mm. historically, my burnout has always been a mental health burnout. Um, So I've had like periods of mental health crisis when I have been to the point of suicidal ideation. Um, And most recently that happened in 2019, um, whereby I found myself in the doctor's surgery, you know, on Christmas Eve saying, I'm really worried that something might happen over Christmas and New Year. Um, And my doctor was freaking amazing. But actually what followed that was a physical burnout and I've not really experienced that before. I think that's because I have got a better handle on my mental health more generally and I am able to see those crises coming. But I think that kind of like juxtaposition of my uh, 
I mean, I, I don't really consider my autism and my ADHD to be separate, that it's mm-hmm. me, you know, like yeah. I have traits of both. And I also have that kind of like 100 miles an hour thing that comes with the dopamine seeking that comes with ADHD. So I overdo it a lot. And I have basically been surviving on adrenaline, I think, for the past 30 years. And I think I just got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. So I hit like physical burnout. Um, I spent five weeks in bed. I could not get out of bed. I was so unwell. I couldn't stay awake. I was basically like, I wasn't drunk, but I felt like I was drunk for five weeks. And then when I was able to get out of bed, I needed to use, I used a wheelchair. I still do use a wheelchair sometimes. Like not because I can't um, self-mobilize, but because it's a, it's an energy conserver. Mm-hmm. I use a stick a lot of the time now, just as an energy conserver. I yeah. had to get my head around that. There was a lot of internalized ableism around that. Um, and it's a pain in the ass using a wheelchair. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but at least I can get out of it when there's a big curb. But, um, but yeah, I used a wheelchair for a while and still do sometimes. And I nap most days, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for three hours. <laughs> um, I, just take to my bed like and I've had and so I have to do things at a different pace now I used to be able to do like you know like five or six calls a day I don't book more than one thing in a day now yeah um so that's a big accommodation I've made for myself around my energy conservation and the knock-on of that is that I model that to Theo so you know in our house we are constantly under blankets on the couch, not because we're cold, but like we've got big fluffy blankets. We've got a a swinging like egg chair in our living room, which is actually a piece of garden furniture. People come in like, why have you got an egg chair in your garden, in your <laughs> living room? That's because that's what Theo sits in. Yeah. You know, we've got a pull-up bar with a yoga swing. You know, we've we've got lots of those kind of like sensory accommodations for ourselves. Um, but yeah, I do things very differently now i say no to a lot more than i say yes to i kind of learned the hard way i mean a friend said yesterday actually if you never say no then your yes means nothing and i was Mm -hmm. like yeah that's totally true so i'm a lot more cautious about what i take on um but it took being in bed for five weeks to make me do that (laughs) yeah it's interesting you you say about the, the fluffy blankets uh both Jude and Tommy love a fluffy blanket, uh, even in the summer. Oh, and you can't beat a fluffy blanket. Tommy makes me sit on the sofa with him with a fluffy blanket before he goes to bed. And I've realized that actually most nights now I still end up with a fluffy blanket after he's gone to bed. <laughs> so it's, a, it's yeah. definitely a sensory soothing activity that, uh, that I've, I've learned and taken. Yeah, taken. for sure. And I think there's lots of, even people who are not autistic can learn a lot about sensory regulation from being around autistic mm. people. Like yeah. needing sensory uh, input is a human need. Mm. You know, we we all need that to regulate our nervous system. It's just that autistic people's dials are turned either really up high or really down low, um, or they swing very easily. But, you know, there are things that we do that I know neurotypical people or holistic people would benefit from in terms of regulating their sensory system. I know that. Um, and I wish that we knew more. I wish we did more for, of that 
for our children and young people. Yeah. You know, in school settings, I wish we did more like who needs to get up and shake their bums every 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, like that would help all learners. <laughs> um, but yeah, our house is very different to what it was before. Mm. Very different. That's great. Cause I, I get lots of messages from, from especially after the Chris Packham documentary, uh, from adults, mm. usually parents of autistic kids who, you know, are spotting things for the first time and, and maybe going through, through what you did and, and kind of asking me if there's any point, if there's any benefit. Um, so I wonder if you'd speak to that and, you know, what, why it's worthwhile an adult, even if you are in your forties, fifties and, and taking those steps to find out more. Seeking a, seeking a, a diagnosis, you mean? Yeah. Either formally or, um, you know, go, understanding it more themselves. Just, yeah, lots of adults seem to almost say, well, what's the point? I'm in my forties. I've, I've gone this long. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just carry on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that, I, that, you know, diagnosis is a privilege mm -hmm. and it's a privilege not afforded to all people. Yeah. Um, you know, and particularly, you know, if you're not white and you're not cisgendered and you're not articulate and you're not of a certain social class, then it can be more difficult to secure a diagnosis. Um, which is why I'm grateful to the autistic community that self ID is, you know, recognized within, the, within our community. Um, you know, really within the community, very rarely does someone say, when were you diagnosed? It's always like, when were you identified or when did you know? Mm -hmm. I think though, for me, that thing of saying, oh, well, what's the point? I'm 45, you know, I've, I've managed this long. I would just be like, just encourage people to just pour a shit ton of compassion on themselves for that. Have you managed this long? At what cost? You know, like, yeah, you've done great. Well done. And mm. you deserve to give yourself some more grace there. Like you want to be thriving, right? Not just surviving. Yeah. You want to be, you want to be understood. You know, you deserve to be understood and you deserve to be respected for all that you are. And you deserve to not have to pretend to be something you're not. I feel like the biggest challenge for late identified people is really getting to know yourself after you've made that realization and starting to kind of like peel back the layers of that mask. You know, it's so funny because one of my biggest things that came with my unmasking inverted commas and it's, and it's forever a journey and I will never be completely unmasked because this is a social thing that I've been working on for 40 odd years. I wouldn't even know how to be completely authentic and mm. not masked because it's been so much a part of my identity. It's probably what makes me mildly more palatable than I was when I was seven years old. But part of that for me personally has been around my use of language. And I swear, I swear now as much as I want to, like, and, um, because for so long, I felt like I was too much. I was, you know, a lot for people. I was brash. I was harsh. I was, you know, all those things that made me unacceptable. And that as a person who is assigned female at birth is extra unacceptable. Yeah. You know, like as a woman, I'm expected to make myself small and not take up space. And, you know, and I just think that for me, 
being able to just be like, do you know what? Fuck this. <laughs> I'm autistic and I'm going to be as fucking autistic as I fucking want to be. And you're not going to fucking stop me <laughs> was really liberating and has been really liberating. And I feel like as a late identified autistic person, I owe myself some kindness around finally being able to be okay with myself. And part of what comes with that is being able to own my neuro, you know, my neurotype. It's not something that should ever be forced on someone. You know, I don't yeah. need people who are autistic to, you know, to have to own their neurotype. But for me, mm. for someone who has felt so misunderstood for so long, and for my child, like I want him to see that it's okay to be yourself, you know? I feel like we say to people all the time, just be yourself. And then we go to autistic people. Oh God, no, not like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's time that we were allowed to genuinely be ourselves because we've got really interesting things to say about the world. And we've got really useful things to teach holistic people about sensory boundaries, for example, you know? So, like I would just say to people, no, no one is, you shouldn't ever feel forced to have to identify in any way that doesn't feel authentic to you. And I would really want to empower people to not gaslight themselves out of owning the identity that feels right to themselves. Because I think there's a lot of that. You know, we mm -hmm. spend our whole life as autistic people trying to fit in trying to not rock the boat, try to be socially acceptable, trying to say the right thing, you know, trying not to come across as weird, you know, and for me personally, having permission to not fit in and to be a bit weird has been really liberating for me. And I think if I understand right, you've found a lot more community in, in that as well. Oh yeah. In, in terms of, of autistic adults, uh, parents of autistic children, uh, who you're supporting and helping. How, how's that community made a difference to your life? And, and what do you see in how it helps others? So I think that I think I say in the book, the antidote to isolation is community. Mm. And, um, the antidote to loneliness is having a circle of people. And I, don't say this flippantly, having the circle that I have has been life affirming and life saving because I now have people that I can say to, I have a couple of really dear friends that I can say who are also autistic and I can say, can you just hold my brain while I just like get this off my chest? And then I'll just be like, blah, 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 blah. and then they're like, yeah, that's shit. <laughs> Do you need to go for a lie down? Yes, I do. Okay, go for a lie down. I'll check in on you in an hour. Rather than not saying when things are really overwhelming me, I really need to process out loud. I need other people to validate like my, I think because I masked for so long, I question whether what I think is happening is actually happening. So I need to be able to say to someone, I'm not being an arsehole, am I? <laughs> and then to go, I mean, well, you might be, but you know, mm. or whatever it might be. And I need having people around me who understand what it's like to have that neurotype and who can validate those experiences without trying to fix it for you. Like that has been 
transformative, you know, and that I think is the difference between like surviving and thriving is having people around you who get it. You don't have to explain to, you know, you can just say, I'm super overwhelmed. I feel really scratchy. You know, I feel really uptight. I can't really put my finger on it. And then just go, okay, what do you need right now? You know, in the moment. Or, yeah, I can hear that's really tough without trying to fix it. That's made a massive difference. And in my community, I see that. Like people saying to each other, that makes total sense. I would feel the same way that you do. How can we support you? And I think that that is, that, that's what, what community really does for people. Yeah. Good community. I, I talk about isolation and, and loneliness quite a lot. Uh, mm. Partly as a single parent, partly as a, a carer mm. of, of my dad's, of the boys, meeting the boys' needs means life can be a bit restrictive at times. And, you know, you don't go to all the social occasions and you, you know, so I can see that how parents can get isolated, uh, how our kids can get isolated too. Um, and for me, it's been exactly the same. Having that community of people who, who just get it, who you don't have to explain mm-hmm. everything inside out. They just, and you can chuck them a message. You can, you know, talk in your Facebook group. You can talk, um, you know, on WhatsApp and just have that connection. And it, for me, mm-hmm. having this page, having, you know, the community of followers, talking to people like yourself, um, you know, and interacting with, with other people, it, it makes such a difference, especially because life can be quite isolating at times. And, and it just, like you said, we need that connection. Yeah, we do. And we are losing autistic people every day to mm. suicide because they feel so isolated. Mm. You know, it's, it's literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's such, a tragedy that we have autistic people who feel so alone, mm. who haven't found their people. Um, it's like you say, when you've got children that you're caring for, especially if they're children who can't be in school, before you know it, yeah, your social circle has totally collapsed. Shrinks, yeah. You know, and, and thank God for social media, you know, because uh, I have people in my community who I consider dear, dear friends who I've never been in the same room as. You know, but I can have conversations with them about things that I could never have conversations with people about who didn't have that shared experience. Mm. And like you say, just having the shortcuts, having the same terms of reference, not needing to explain to people, not needing to frame everything, you know, just being able to show up as you are is, is the difference between feeling like utter crap and feeling like you can manage, you know. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think social media, you know, there's a lot of negative negativity around social media and there's a lot of mm-hmm. not very nice things on social media, but I think if you curate your social media and, and use it for, for certain aspects, I think it can be so beneficial and it does, like you said, keep in contact mm-hmm. with people, other ends of the country, other side of the world who you may never be in the same room as, but actually become really good friends and because you've got such shared experiences. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing uh, those shared experiences is one of the reasons that you wrote your book. 
it's one of the reasons that you decided to tell a little bit about your story and about Theo's story and I guess the journey you've been on. So do you, do you want to tell us a bit more about your book? So yeah, <laughs> I can. So the book is called uh, Your Child Is Not Broken, Parent Your Neurodivergent Child Without Losing Your Marbles. And basically it's a retelling of our experiences. Um, so I kind of pick out some of what we've talked about today, you know, mm. the journey that we've been on, but the things that I've learned throughout that journey. So talking about, there's a chapter on my own mental health, there's a chapter on um, realizing you're neurodivergent after your child has been identified. There's a chapter on, you know, like all of the stuff around trying to get kids into school, touching the gate is kind of a thing that we talk about in my community. Um, Cause it turns out it's a thing. Someone somewhere yes. must've trained it in at a senior level somewhere along the line, because now schools <laughs> across the country ask kids to come and touch gates. It's ridiculous. I, um, I read that part you know, and I was shocked that it was, you know, I, I guess but I can imagine myself as a parent in that place thinking, well, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's do that because that's another step towards getting them back into school. But then, being the parent I am now, reading it, going, "Oh my god!" Like, well, how? And like you said, it's, it's not just this one therapist who's told you this. It's it's a, a wide renowned practice. There's a whole thing. I mean, there's variations on the theme. Sitting in the mm. car park in the car, sitting in reception, touching the gate, but they're all around the same. Yeah. Ridiculous notion that actually our children just need to be exposed to the thing that is hurting them in order mm. for them to get over it, which is absolute rubbish. Um, so yeah, so each chapter is kind of like talks about an experience that we had and what I learned in that. And then kind of like the, the book is really supposed to be sort of like, first and foremost, it's for people who are in those circumstances to realize that their experiences are not one off and they're not alone. And it's not that they're losing their marbles. This is a real thing, mm. but also just sort of just, empower people to be able to recognize things around their own stereotyping, their own ableism, you know, empower people to really have that time to think about what is right for my family, you know, to give people permission to do things differently um, and to encourage people to seek out community. That's kind of like, that's what I hope the book does. Um, you know, and I, and I have been like pretty blown away by the response, to be honest. I knew that, I knew it was the book that I think I wrote this in the extra content because I wrote an extra 10,000 words for the, for the new edition. Cause basically I self-published, it came out in January, self-published, and then it went really well and it like went into the top 10 on Amazon and it went into Sunday times bestsellers. And then I got approached by publishers who were like, can we republish your book? And um, I eventually agreed to be republished by Bluebird who are an imprint of Macmillan on the understanding that I could write some more because I didn't want to just go back to my community and say, buy my book again. It's got a new yeah. cover. Hmm. So I wrote an extra 10,000 words. And in the extra content in the book, I've written a lot more about what happened since the book was published first time round and observations around that. There's a section on rejection sensitivity, there's a section on parental blame. And there's a couple of pieces of poetry and prose written by members of my community. And in that book, in that extra section, I said, I, I thought, I knew this was the book I, I needed to write, but what I didn't realize that this is the book that thousands of people needed to read. And like, I have been swamped 
by messages and emails and just people constantly coming to me and saying, I've just read your book and I'm crying because I finally have found someone who gets it or I genuinely thought I was the only one. And like, that's what I wanted to do. Like, I know it sounds really wanky, but I just did that thing of if this helps one person, it will be worth it. Yeah, because it's not easy to write a book when you're ADHD as fuck. So I'm <laughs> proud that I did it, you know. Um, but I do, I know that it helps people. Hmm. I know that the story that I tell is the story of thousands of families like mine. Um, and I think that's why it has such power. And I think that's why people have really taken to it so much. And some people have been like, well, I don't get it. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. It's, this book isn't for you. Yeah. Um, but I, but I know that it's made a difference. I, I can imagine. I, I've read it. I thought it was amazing. I, even though our experiences are, are quite different with our, our boys, mm. and and I'm, you know, fifteen years in now, there's still so much I could relate to, and and took me back to you know the early years with Tommy and Jude. Uh, a lot of the emotions you describe for your as a parent. And especially the parental blame and uh, just the way you, you saw things and was able to analyze them and look back and, and like you said, I, I guess be the, be the book that parents need at, at that stage. That That's what I got from it. You know, if I was a few years into the journey, if I was having a tough time at school, um, I think it, it's a, a fantastic book for parents to read and I can... I'm really not surprised it's done as well as it has. So congratulations on the new print coming out. That's really exciting. It came out, is it last yeah. week it came out? Last week, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I'm currently doing that thing at the minute where I'm reading a bookshop. Bookshop's a bit like, I don't know if you ever saw the BT advert for J.R. Hartley. And maybe oh, yeah. <laughs> I do, yeah. There's an old guy Quite bringing, bringing yeah. bookshops. I feel a bit like that at the moment. <laughs> Can you tell me if you have a book in stock? <laughs> um but do, yeah, do you want them to say it's in it's stock amazing. or out of stock that's the <laughs> well yeah and also <laughs> i i'm not sure what to do if i go into a bookshop and they have it i'm not sure whether i'm meant to buy it so they get it in again or whether i'm meant to leave it so that someone buys it mm. so <laughs> i'm like no one's given me any instructions so <laughs> one of those things where I'm like, I'm being very autistic about it. I need a, I need a clear instruction and no one's telling me. It's making me quite anxious, but, um, but yeah, it's amazing. Hmm. It's brilliant. It's a, it's a testament to all the, all the work you've done these last few years. So, so well done. It's, uh, it's, re it's really good to see from the community Thank as well, to see that it's being, uh, you know, taken to so positively and that it's, it's really helping people. Um, I know how good it feels to get a, a comment or a message saying you've helped somebody. So it must be great to, to get that from mm -hmm. your book. Yeah, it is. It feels like it's kind of been worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, I feel like in a really, I know it sounds quite trite, but I feel like I turned the suffering to something useful. <laughs> so just before we, we finish off just a couple of last questions, what would you say? So to someone who's, picking up your book what's a couple of things you want them to take away from it i want you to be able to find something useful in the pages of the book that can just give you some strength or some courage 
to do things a little differently, like to give yourself permission to do things a little differently, however that looks for you. Um, and I kind of would like to think that it's a like the book is not, it's not a, a how-to at all. It's like a kind of like, a, this is what I experienced. This is what I found. This is what I wish I'd known. This mm. is what I'd like you to know sort of thing. But I hope that it will be, lots of people have reached out to me and said, I haven't read a book from page to page in years. It's the first book that Bluebird have ever published in a dyslexia font. Um, when I first right. published it, I published it in a dyslexia font. And that's that thing about it being more accessible for all people, not just neurodivergent people, because it turns out that all holistic people find new, find dyslexic fonts much easier as well. But I would hope that it will be like a bit of a springboard for people to be like, oh, okay, so I'd like to find out a bit more about masking, or I'd like to find about a bit, a bit more about stereotyping, or I'd like to find out a bit more about disability discrimination, you know, because I, it's kind of, a, it's very much a kind of like, scratch the surface of lots of issues without a massive deep dive into anything in particular. So I hope it kind of inspires people to go and do some more learning because I think that's the thing I've learned as a parent and as an autistic person is that this is a journey forever that we're on. Hmm. You can never know everything there is to know. Um, yeah. So I'd hope that, that it does that for people. Definitely. I'm, I'm sure it will. Like I said, uh, I'm 15 years into this with, with Tommy and Jude and I still learned a lot reading the book. So um mm. so yeah i'm sure it will and stepping away from the autism community for a minute what what's one thing you'd like mm -hmm. the, the whole world to know about autism i would like people to know that autistic people i know it like we're all so very different from one another and we are still very human mm. i i find it really difficult to see the dehumanization of autistic people within the media within conversations within school systems it doesn't serve those of us who have obvious support needs and it doesn't serve those of us who have invisible support needs and um, and all it does is make it easier for people not to meet meet us where we are and not to make accommodations. So I would really, I really wish that like other disabilities, autism was seen as, I mean, it's all, it's, it's my whole identity. It's my neurotype. It's my brain. It's how I do things. And I'm still a human being. And I really wish that more people made that connection and that we weren't so othered. And I think that people being out and speaking about their autism is what will move us towards that. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I've, I'd like to think that we are moving towards that. I know there's still a long way to go, but I think from mm -hmm. people sharing their stories like yourself, I think it, it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Heidi, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your story where, but just before you go, where's the best place for people to find you? If people go to my website, HeidiMaver.com, it's spelled M-A-V-I-R. It's uh, spelt Mavia, but it's pronounced Maver. <laughs> uh, so yeah, HeidiMaver.com and they can find all of my stuff. I'm on the socials. Facebook is my kind of like natural home, but I'm also on Instagram and TikTok. But yeah, come and find me. Come and find my community. Join us. Um, yeah, go find my website. There's links there for everything. 
Perfect. Well, I'll put all those details in the notes for the episode. Um, like I said, Heidi, thank you. I'm sure everyone's going to love listening to your story. Quick one before you go. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, subscribe to the podcast, which will make sure you don't miss any future episodes, but will also help other people find the podcast too. In the show notes, you'll find links for the best places to find this week's guest and where you can connect with me. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode, so tag me or DM me in all the usual places. Hope you enjoyed this week's story about autism.